0: Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagan, your co-host, and who do I have here? Who's looking right at me right now in Los Angeles, California? Is it Hello? It is, it's her.
1: Yay!
0: Welcome back, Emily Jane Fox.
1: I'm so happy. And and I'm pretty much here to stay.
0: That I like to hear. Ah, okay, okay. I knew there would be it was in this caveat, but we would hope to keep you. We want to keep you.
1: I think I'm here to stay for you guys, for you, Joe, and for for everyone listening, I'm still on leave. I'm on leave um, for quite a bit more time, which is so wonderful. And I'm so grateful to Vanity Fair and Conde Nast for supporting me and my family. Um, But I couldn't stay away from you. I couldn't stay away from this podcast. And so while I'm still officially on leave, I'm uh, I'm fresh back us. here.
0: Yeah, you're here for us I when we you need guys. you. you guys. Yeah, well, we missed you too. and um,
1: I doubt that. But you you have been holding it down. I've enjoyed it so much as a listener. Um, I'm sure no one has missed my presence here. But sorry, guys.
0: Mm, we'll have I'm, to. I'm yeah, here. We're going to have to look at the Yelp reviews on that one. But um, Oh, yeah,
1: totally.
0: Well, last week we had uh, the man we're calling the OG, uh, Nick Bilton,
1: no one like him. Nick and I ran into each other at the farmer's market on Sunday in a very L.A. moment. Uh, we brought a little JR to the farmer's market. We've been doing that every Sunday morning, which is very sweet. She's She loves her baby carrier. And we were just picking out some flowers on our way back to the car. And who did we see but Nick and his two boys and his wife Krista. And uh, his boys were dressed... One was dressed as Spider-Man and one was dressed as, I believe, King George from Hamilton. And it was just such a treat. And now you're in town, Joe.
0: I am. I've pla- I've, I'm walking the sidewalks of Los Angeles this week. I love Los Angeles. It's great. It was weird. I flew in uh, earlier this week and the moment I landed, there was a freak lightning storm and, and rain was coming down. And it, you know, for me coming from the East Coast, this was I was not that not that unusual. It was not novel to me. I wasn't stirred by it particularly. I was like, oh, a little rain, a little lightning, it's okay. People were so freaked out everywhere I went. It was like people had some kind of like, um, and and understandably, first of all, it hasn't rained here in a long time. I guess you don't get a lot of lightning storms, but just nature in general seemed to give everybody a little bit of a PTSD uh, reaction, which. I understand in this neck of the woods but tell me that yeah you know, has it not rained a lot?
1: Well, I definitely can't remember the last time it rained and I do not think I have seen lightning here ever. Wow. I have not heard thunder here ever and I'm obviously very new to Los Angeles so uh yeah. that is that is not some it's not like I've been here for 25 years I've never seen it but in the almost 3 years that I've been spending the majority of my time here I have never seen it. And so it was very strange. Our dogs freaked out because they definitely don't see it very often. And yeah, people lose their shit when it rains here, which is just your average day on the East Coast. And it's kind of been, I hate to say it, Joe, but I feel like you maybe brought some gloom with you. before you. Last weekend was a scorcher. It was 90 degrees. And it was sunny. It's been sunny since I got back from New York a few weeks ago. It's been just extended summer. And this week it's like, it's barely sunshine. It's a little bit on the chilly side. Mm -hmm. I like, I have worn a sweater this week in a, inappropriate fashion. Most people wear sweaters here and when it's completely inappropriate to do so because they just crave a season, but we're kind of having a little bit of a season here.
0: Yes. I so don't, you brought it. I, I brought it from the East Coast, but I have to say that um, it's been interesting coming to Los Angeles because I've been just reading about it in the news, the fires, mm. of course. And of course, mm. and the same time I came here also, there was an oil spill off the coast and the beaches right. became closed. Mm. Um, and just my uh, impression of uh, Los Angeles and California as a place sort of um, inundated by freak natural disasters Mm. Um, I could feel it here, you know, in a way that I hadn't in the past. And that was a little, um, it's a little spooky. And then, of course, there's the pandemic. And I will say that people are extremely vigilant here, Um, I've noticed. And I know the city just passed an ordinance saying uh, that you now could be required to show proof of vaccination to get into restaurants. And and so Los Angeles just doesn't feel like the Los Angeles that I'm used to. Maybe I'm the cause, as we discussed uh, a moment ago, but it is—it's uh, interesting to come back, having not been here since the pandemic, and have a completely different feeling city.
1: It's interesting uh, because I had—I have now gone back to New York twice. First in May, and then we were back uh, for for most of September. And the difference between the way people are handling the pandemic in New York City now versus Los Angeles is pretty striking. Um, And I don't know if that's because of how the pandemic was handled or experienced early on. I think New York obviously had that first very early surge where everything was locked down and and, uh, it was a very scary place to be. Los Angeles had kind of consistently high numbers, but it never was to the level of New York, but it sort of never also went down the way it did in New York. You was sort of just this steady line of elevated numbers. And I think that that has psychologically stayed with people. And I also think that the, the city and surrounding cities, because it just sort of stayed at an elevated level, things were closed a lot longer and had a lot more restrictions for a lot longer than they did in New York City. And so I think that that, you know, the mindset is just different here than it it was in New York. We didn't experience mass trauma the same way, but we did experience sort of mass prolonged exposure. And I think that that just kind of messes with your sense of what's, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. I also think, you know, the exception of this week, the weather is so much nicer here. And so I cannot imagine indoor dining in LA because there's no need to indoor dine in LA the way that, okay, in New York, the weather's shitty most of the time. And there's not a lot of space on the sidewalk, right? Here, it's like every restaurant's taken over a gigantic parking lot, basically. And it's pretty much 75 degrees, 360 days of the year. So it's just a different mentality. And I think at least... You know, I'm in a different space because I have a three-month-old baby, and so the prospect of doing anything that's at all risky is just not really on the table for us. But I, I just feel like here you're not taking as many of the risks as you do in New York, because in New York, I think you just live life a little harder in general than people live life in Los Angeles. Yeah, that's my
0: take. Yeah, for you and I, that um, uh, you know, we can enjoy the um, the sort of uh, fruits of the urban paradise here. But I will say this also, and this is just a uh, I don't mean to strike sour notes about Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. which is a city that I love, but the homelessness here is very terrible. And uh, I was really, I've been, I've always noticed it in San Francisco. And of course it has something to do with the weather. It's a place that, you know, you can be homeless and, and, you know, survive more readily than out East. But, um, but it seems like, and I don't know if it's gotten worse recently, or maybe I'm just seeing more of it myself, but, um, it's definitely a, an issue out here, but, um, so, you know, I don't want to continue uh, to be a downer about L.A. because it is a city that I, I dearly love uh, for all kinds of other reasons. But I just want to remark that um, I, uh, I saw Nick Bilton yesterday, met him, mm. for, th- met him for the first time uh, in the flesh. You know, we've been in living in this remote world for so long and I finally met him and it was great. And um, last week uh, he had encouraged me when we were talking about social media to take all the social media apps off my phone.
1: Whoa.
0: And he said that's a good way to kind of break the addiction, right? Because there's been a lot of talk about addiction in social media for the last couple of weeks. I've been noticing it everywhere. The cigarette metaphor has become like uh, much more mainstream. People are talking about this constantly. And um, so I decided uh, I'm gonna do that. And yet, last night he asked me, how's that going? Uh, have you... Uh, kept them off? Have you reloaded them? I, and I hadn't. And um, when you're traveling, it's very easy to just use that as a space, you know, take up space, take up time when you're just idling somewhere at an airport or whatever. And um, without that, I've been forced to read books, which, oh my God, who knew? I, f- I forgot. You know, there's books. You what can just you read reading? those. What are you reading? I'm reading a book, just came out. It's called Major Labels by uh, Khalifa Sana, Um, Mm. and it's a book about kind of a breakdown and analysis of popular music over the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years. He's a really smart writer for The New Yorker, and I just, uh, and so what um, Nick suggested that turned out to be really kind of a smart suggestion is wherever your social media app was on your phone or uh, put in its place, you know, a reader of some kind. So that instead of like, you know, your impulse is to go there and start flicking through Instagram, you can click on the book that you're reading and, you know, you just changed your behavior. And so anyway, I bring this up because we uh, want to segue into talking about this Facebook whistleblower that blew up uh, the internet this week.
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, that that is inspiring and once my eyes are uh, not tired Enough to fall asleep after I read basically six words strung together. I'm going to do that because I am so sick of the internet and so sick of social media. But it is really, I find right now with my broken brain, it's like the only thing that I could possibly digest. Mm -hmm. But I'm so sick of everything that I do on the internet. And particularly, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night and I have basically 45 minutes of a week time at you know, between somewhere between four and six in the morning. And I just find a rabbit hole to go down and it's the most unproductive rabbit hole, but it's the only thing that's keeping me awake and keeping my eyes open at a time where I need to have my eyes open. And I just, I hate the internet because of it. It's, it's making me hate uh, a lot of things because it's sort of a, a dreaded period of time and whatever I'm doing in that period of time, I dread. So I'm ready for that Break as soon as my brain will allow me. Particularly after hearing the whistleblower this week, um, I I tuned back in, and I was just so upset with with what I saw. And I don't know what resonated the most for me. There was obviously there are two parts of the discussion. Basically, um, the part of the discussion where. Uh, the whistleblower was talking about the reports that Facebook kept hidden about teenage girls and what they take away from Instagram, and then the part about the algorithm and how it's, it's so detrimental to us. And the thing that I kept thinking about was the whistleblower made the point that, um, that Facebook could go back to a chronological news feed rather than uh, staying with the algorithm which puts people towards all sorts of uh, destructive misinformation and, you know, a a loop of things that are all evil. Um, And do you remember when Twitter did that? Do you remember when Twitter was chronological instead of uh, based on what they thought you would want to see? And remember when when it changed and everyone lost their minds because it changed? Yes. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, I generally think that when people are, you know, they see something change on a social media app that they're used to. They It's like the world is ending and then three days later, everyone's used to the change and they're happy for it and and all of those things. Uh, I don't feel like I ever got over Twitter changing the, the the lack of chronological feed. And I know that you can change it back and you can go back to a chronological thing feed. But the default is for it to be sort of this weird algorithm that makes no sense to me. And I feel like I end up missing so much news. And I find it really hard to follow because nothing is in the order that it should be in when you're just going on Twitter to to find out what's happening in the world at that moment. And I really think it would be so beneficial to go back to having a chronological news feed on Facebook. It's like, that's exactly what it should be. But there's absolutely no financial incentive for Facebook to do it. It works for them to have this algorithm that keeps people on the app for longer. And I think what we need to stop doing, it's really easy to be mad at Facebook for promoting the worst things in the world because they—that that is what they're doing. And they're making money off of uh, off of that. But they're a company, right? Should they have loftier goals of, of working to promote a better society and removing the evils that they have created. Of course, that's what we would want for our leaders of, of one of the biggest companies in the history of the world. You would want that. You would want to think that that, that a platform that has created a lot of good in this world um, and has certainly made billions and billions of dollars, that they they would want to see the best for this country and for this world, um, but it's clear that they don't at this point. That's not what they're operating from. They're not operating from trying to make this the best version of society. They're operating from a place of trying to make the most money. And so uh, we could sit here and bang our heads against the wall and say, why won't Zuckerberg make this change? It's so clear what they're doing is rotting our brains and ruining our children and, and bringing the worst things in the world's attention and eyeballs and promoting so much hate and fostering so much misinformation, that's just who they are. And I don't think it's going to change. And maybe you can regulate the shit out of them in order to make some kind of change. But this is who Facebook is. And you know, the, the old adage of when someone shows you who they are, listen, I think we know who Facebook is at this point. And I don't think any amount of uh, whistleblowing or hand-wringing is going to change them, unfortunately. And I think we should just stop expecting them to do the right thing because they never have. Well, that
0: was partly the takeaway from our conversation last week with Nick, which was that, you know, we don't really have any leverage over them right mm-hmm. they're too powerful i mean we do have this bipartisan revolt right now against facebook because the whistleblower came out and caused some noise to happen and maybe the negative pr around it could have some you know effect on facebook's behavior but but what nick said and i think remains true is it really comes back to us and what we decide to do and and in, in our own individual you know lives we we have to kind of break the addiction to it. We have to not feed into it uh, something that's, you know, causing all these divisions. And of course, you know, even with all the misinformation out there, we don't have a lot of uh, power to control it and regulate it. So, you know, unplug from it. And uh, as he said, he was citing the uh, 1980s uh, Matthew Broderick film, War Games, uh, there's a a line at the end of it uh, where the computer that he is uh, facing off with during the potential nuclear holocaust, uh, is the the computer says uh, the only winning move is not to play, which was the title of last week's episode, mm-hmm. and, and that's sort of uh, where I came back to, which is why I decided it's time to kind of attenuate my own uh, use and behavior, because at the end of the day, I what can I do to Facebook? The only thing I can do to them is not use it, right, and. Um, I can't say there are things that I would that I like about Facebook and, you know, the connections that you can have with people you haven't talked to in years and everything, but sure, uh, you just have to use it less. In any event, uh, we will see whether there's any fallout from that.
1: I, I wouldn't hold your breath. And I know the, thing, the, the last thing I'll say about Facebook, and then I have something else I want to get your opinion on, you know. For so long, everyone who I've talked to has basically been like, Facebook is dying to be regulated. Mm. All they want is to be regulated. They're desperate for that, so they don't have to make hard decisions. And I believe that to be true. And I just want to say that's such a fucking cop out. Yeah. That's all. Yeah, it is. That's that's all. You don't, uh, you don't need to be regulated to do the right thing. If you need someone else to force you to do the right thing, I wish you good luck in, in sleeping soundly at the end of the day. Yeah. Speaking of speaking soundly at the end of the day, uh, and needing people to tell you to do the right thing, there is a new book out that I I will not go into the details of, but it's it's a book by Stephanie Grisham, who was the press secretary in the Trump White House. She was uh, an aide to Melania Trump, former first lady, and she was she was really like speaking of ogs. She was really like one of the ogs. In the Trump campaign and then White House, and and one of the longest-serving people, and she uh, very courageously resigned on January sixth because it took to January sixth to realize that Donald yeah. Trump was a bad force in American politics, and yeah, what got a revelation! Way,
0: yeah,
1: I am just stunned at the turn of events that happened on January 6th that allowed for Stephanie Grisham to finally realize that this man was not the man she thought he was. So she has a new book out and I haven't read it. I won't read it. And it's gotten quite a bit of attention this week. There's a big profile in New York Magazine. It's sort of been all over cable, all over Twitter. And I think it is deranged That she wrote this book, and I think it's deranged that people are paying attention to it. I say this as someone who basically, for the last three months, turned off all news to be present in my life. And because, frankly, I was just really sick of it after the last five years of us being so intensely focused on every minute detail. So I feel like I'm coming at this with the freshest eyes that I could possibly come at this with. And I think it is deranged to talk about Donald Trump at this point. Like, let it go. He, the man is gone. What happened was fucked up. We lived through a, a, a constitution-shaking, country-altering thing. And for the most part, it's over. And that's great. Democracy worked. And we are now in the midst of—, of Things happening in this country and in Washington and to an administration or with an administration that are feel like normal politics to me. And there there are, are incredibly important things happening in Washington and they're consequential. And whether or not you agree with how the Biden administration is handling it is stuff that we should talk about on this podcast. But uh, it's just sort of standard Washington fare, which is great. That's what you want. That's that's really all that we wanted out of President Biden was to take us out of the madness. But we are out of the madness. And if you continue to want to read what is in Stephanie Grisham's book, you need to get a hobby.
0: Right. Well,
1: that's my feeling.
0: Now, I want to put Stephanie Grisham over here because I'm going to set her aside over here because all she is really is somebody that you know, the publishing houses of New York have hey, here's a bucket of money. All you have to do is say what you saw and thought, and we'll put it out there and, and rake in some dough and put you on the bestseller list. Yes. That, that's not so interesting. But, like, I think the reason that, you know, a couple of weeks ago, this foreign policy writer, Robert Kagan, came out in The Washington Post. and He wrote this extremely terrifying uh, column about the prospect of Trump returning. Yes. And— uh, every time Trump comes back to the foreground in recently, it's because the Senate is doing an investigation of what happened on January 6th. But the it, it partly has to do in my analysis is that the Biden kind of agenda has hit so many potholes from the terrible way in which we got out of Afghanistan and the question of whether we should have done it that way to the thwarted infrastructure bill and the social safety net and climate change package that the democrats can't seem to get their act together on and we you know you can read all about it with kirsten Sinema and joe manchin and we all know that story but as the biden you know agenda kind of wobbles uh then emerges from that the specter of trump's return and everybody's terrified about it and and it kind of brings back you know Speaking of PTSD, I mean, that's like what everybody doesn't—it gives people a fright because um, the talk of, you know, that you've probably read and we've all been reading about is that in Texas and other places, they're kind of creating blueprints for how to, uh, you know, win next time, to grab uh, electoral power and reassert the Trump fascist kind of agenda and get it right the second time if we're not careful. And so we've been debating this uh, in in the press, but I do think that uh, the only proper way to bring Trump into the news is to talk about what he did on January six. Totally. And the only way to talk about it is to talk about um, the um, you know the Southern District of New York and what they're doing. Uh, and, and we've and Best Levin wrote a great column up this week about about Trump's accountant and sort of the legal case against him and the pressure on him to, to fork over some information about Trump's wrongdoings. This is what we should be focusing on. And, you know, the Democrats, of course, will try to focus on that in 2022 and all the crimes that are you know, b- being unearthed. And you, do you really want these people, uh, you know, back in charge after this? I mean, that's gonna be the case. That's gonna be the argument. And meanwhile, uh, though, The Democrats have to figure out a way, you know, through this impasse, they have to get that infrastructure bill passed. They have to get that other climate and uh, safety net thing passed. It's going to be painful. Everybody's going to come out unhappy. But if they don't, you know, put something on the board, then we are going to have to start talking about Trump again. And we are going to have to talking about how they use social media as uh, from their misinformation campaigns. Um so we are at a very strange moment in the year and in the political cycle where just everything is dissatisfying, right? It just feels you're, yeah.
1: You're totally right. I think we went into this summer sort of being like, This is it's COVID's over, the era of, of Trump is over, and everyone loves Biden as a president and hallelujah, amen. And it it is not open and shut like we thought it was going to be with COVID. It's not that way with Trump. It's not that way with this, the Biden honeymoon that we had. And, you know, I think that the worst thing for Trump's chances of actually entering are by making him irrelevant right now. If you don't talk about him He's not in the daily news coverage. He doesn't have things to respond to. I don't know if you're still on his email list, but I can't seem to get off of them. (laughs) And it's, it's interesting because I just... He's constantly responding to things that are happening in the news about him. And so it's sort of like, just don't talk about him and he won't have things to respond to. Don't talk about him. He won't be in the forefront of everyone's minds anymore. And I think that that is... Uh, very important for Democrats' electoral prospects. But but equally, if not way more important, they need to figure out what they're going to run on in 2022 and definitely in 2024. You don't have Trump as the foil, or we shouldn't have Trump as the foil, right? So where are you going out there and saying, this is the reason why you're voting for Democrats? If you don't put things on the board, as you just said, you don't have a reason to say we should be reelected again. Yep. And you don't have a man to run against as we as we did in the last two cycles. So, what's the reason you're enticing people to a vote for a Democrat and B show up to the polls? Right now that Democrats are in power, yeah, both in Congress and in the White House, it's the the burden is on them to get turnout. Right, mm-hmm. usually the incumbents have a harder time winning reelection, and and the opposite side is way more incentivized to turn out to the polls. So if you don't have a message and you don't have a track record of doing something over the last two to four years, you don't have a foil to run against and your bench is really shallow, as I feel like it is, I don't know what's I don't have a great feeling.
0: Well, this is definitely a moment to not have a great feeling, because the thing that they could potentially run on in 2022 are these bills are mm-hmm. the passage of actual legislation and say, hey, look, it might've been messy. There might've been some infighting. We didn't do everything right, but we got you X, right? And uh, they need that X, they need that thing, right? And um, right now they don't really have it. So one of the questions becomes, uh, flash forward a year from now, when these elections are going on, will the outcome of the January 6 events And when we learn and when the full reports come out about what Trump did and didn't do, you know, is he and the specter of Trump going to be enough to wrap around the necks of various Republican candidates, you know, to have an effect? Right. And that's a question for me. I mean, I want to just mention that uh, this week on on the Hive website, we've got an excerpt from the uh, new Adam Schiff. Uh, book, The Congressman from California. It's called Midnight in Washington. And he describes his own personal experiences on that day. And, you know, it's yet another layer of horror added to that. And I just want to say there's one little quote in here where he's um, being sort of, uh, you know, he's running uh, the security apparatus, is trying to get him out of the chamber because the uh, maniacs are coming. And he is quoted here, he says, um, He quotes a Republican member of Congress whose name he doesn't uh, reveal. He says, you can't let them see you, a Republican member said to me. He's right, another Republican member said. I know these people. I can talk to them. I can talk my way through them. You're in a whole different category. And in that moment, we were not merely members of different political parties, but on opposite sides of a much more dangerous divide. And so, you know... The prospect of returning to a world in which these guys are back in power and that level of toxicity is enabled, is going to set the stage for Trump to come back into power, that is something that uh, I don't know how—I think that will motivate some Democrats if they get it right. But that's a year from now, so hard to say.
1: You know what I feel about that? I think, you know how we were talking just a little bit ago about how you want Facebook to want the right thing, but ultimately, you know, they're going to end up, you know, going with what gives them the most money. I sort of feel like you want the American people to vote out, the people who are attached to what happened on January 6th, but ultimately they're going to vote with their pocketbooks and what's going to give them what they think the most money or uh, the best economic shot. I, I I ultimately want what happened on January 6th to matter. But I fear in my cynical heart that perhaps that is not going to be the voting issue in in a year from now or in three years from now. But maybe I'm wrong. American people prove me wrong. I would love to be wrong about nothing more than this.
0: Well, as you know, as we all know, you can't predict anything. Right. I mean, six months ago, we were talking about, you know, the pandemic going away this summer and all boats rising on a uh, tide of economic uh, growth and the sort of that suppressing the negative Trumpian forces in the country or sort of de-escalating things. And to some degree that happens, but uh, lots of other things have happened that were unpredictable. Right? The Afghanistan thing was just like, whoa, suddenly, you know, the ground shifts and the ground's going to shift like 10 times between now and a year from now. And we don't know what direction that's going to go. But it is true. And I hate to uh, tap into my own cynical heart.
1: We, but, need your, um, we need your sunny side, Joe.
0: I know the sunny side of the street. Well, you know, being here in sunny Los Angeles um, does tap into that. But it kind of ironically, also, uh, you know, reveals the shadows and the shadow here is that we remain a divided country and, you know, I'm still driving around where I live back East and seeing horrendous bumper stickers that say terrible things and flags flapping in yards. And, you know, it's still out there now to, you know, how energized is it? How much political force can be drawn from it? We don't yet know. Um, but. I remain hopeful. I will say that. Well, I try. I mean, you kind of have to. What what can you do? I mean, we're in this in this situation where I mean, everybody I talk to, and I'm sure it's the same way with you. Everybody's just like, "God, things are so horrible. Things are so horrible. 360 degree horrible, right?" And the only good part is just what's happening in your four walls with your people, right? And your friends and and everybody's looking out from there, and just saying, "Well, the rest of the world is just a nightmare," and so I just have to kind of cultivate a sanity within my own, uh, you know, domain here. Well, I mean, I'll give you a that's... tip.
1: Do you want my tip? Yes. Have another baby. Ha! <laughs> because I will say, not only is it constant joy, but yeah. you'll be both so tired and so disconnected. From what's happening in the world, that you won't even care. That's kind of how yeah. I feel. Oh,
0: I like that. It's um, well, uh, that's um, for me not in, not in the cards. But I still have children that's true. Uh, under my roof, and they they keep me plenty distracted. And, and besides, even the distraction and the exhaustion, that's where I draw my own personal, you know, yes. um, kind of hope from. Is they, this is the world they're growing up in, so they've adapted to it and they are adapting to it, and they get up every day with laughter and smiles on their face because, you know, they have a kind of built-in faith from not knowing things. And in a way, it's gonna be up to them to repair it all and to fix it, but they're in many ways more advanced than I am. Of course. You know, they they know more about how to live in this reality. My problem, and people my age is problem, uh, is that we came from a totally different reality when nothing was like this, and we're having to adapt with even less resources and less, you know, facilities, faculties for <laughs> coping with all the change. It was, as it, That's how it is, you know. Well, um,
1: children are the future, and we can draw both our hope and our wistfulness for their yeah. lack of understanding of the good old days, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I hate talking like that because I don't like to be like, you know, the old man with his wagging finger or whatever, but uh, I don't know if you saw a couple of weeks ago. I've mentioned this in the podcast maybe a couple of episodes ago. But Michelle Goldberg, columnist from the New York Times, she wrote a whole piece about the sort of um, the feelings of loss among mm. the middle aged, of which she is one, and you know the conversations that she has with people she knows um, is they complain about some of the critiques on the on their own left, right. And they feel like, hey, we kind of came up where you could say what you wanted and you could be more free. And we feel like our freedom and our sense of, you know, place in the world has been upended by these sort of uh, police type mentality and the academics of the left and the and the more progressive parties. But and, and Michelle Goldberg's argument was that, okay, well. They're trying to. We're trying to protect something here, and it's. It'll be sad for you, yes, and I'm sorry you're sad, but the danger on the right is so much more uh, intense that we have to focus our, our um, you know activism and our minds and our intellectual you know uh, energy on that. And um, I don't know if I don't know about that. I mean, uh, there's arguments around that, and. People have different feelings, but uh, so all but the, the, all of which is to say that um, the things I'm saying here are not unique. Um, the feelings I've had, you know, looking out at the world and trying to make sense of it, and uh, but it, it does get exhausting. Feeling like we're all in some battle,
1: mm.
0: you know, it's a battle to kind of maintain equilibrium, and uh, but that's what you and I have been doing since we started this podcast.
1: That's why I mean, as. Unappealing is that battle sounds. I am happy to be back to, to battle it with you and, and to talk through all of the things that feel hard because sometimes when you talk through them and when you listen through them, they feel a little less hard or at least you feel a little less alone. So I feel so mm-hmm. happy to be back talking through all the things that feel hard with you. Um, I hear little June bug waking in the next room. So I'm mm-hmm. going to go back to my different kind of hard, but we will be back Next week, talking through it.
0: We'll come back next week. We'll talk through it. Uh, No doubt there'll be another turn in the news screw that we will try to examine and comprehend. And meanwhile, go back to your own source of happiness and optimism. And welcome back to Inside the Hive. And um, we are going to be back episode after episode once again. uh, You know, you and I will tag team. And uh, I'm happy to uh, be sharing the same Los Angeles Rays with you.
1: I know know you're busy for your last two days here, but I'm going to try and chase you down.
0: All right. Well, we'll see you soon.
1: All right. Take care, guys. See you next week.
0: And that's our show this week. I'd like to thank Emily Jane Fox for coming back and gifting us with her beautiful presence. I'd like to thank our producer, Brett Fuchs, the people at Cadence 13, who helped make this podcast possible, and I'd like to thank our sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast. Hit subscribe, come back and see us next week, and we'll see you there.